Let's go to 2 Peter chapter 2. We're going to be in uh, verses, God willing, 1 through 4. 3. 1 through 3. But we need to go back and just have some context and back up just a little bit. So, go to Genesis 1. <laughs> Thank you. Somebody's listening. Amen. Thank you, Lynn. <laughs> um, 2 Peter chapter uh, 2, verses 1 through 3. We'll back up in the previous chapter to go to verse 19 of chapter 1. If you're, physically, if you're physically able, if you're physically able, could you stand with me right now as we read from God's precious Word? Out of respect for it, for Him. Second Peter 1.19, we'll back up a little bit. And so, we have also a more sure word of prophecy, which you would do well to heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts knowing this first, that no prophecy of Scripture is of any private interpretation. For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. But there were also false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you, who will secretly bring in destructive heresies, even denying the Lord who bought them, and bring on themselves swift destruction. And many will follow their destructive ways, because of whom the way of truth will be blasphemed. By covetousness, they will exploit you with deceptive words. For a long time, their judgment has not been idle, and their destruction does not slumber. That's the word of the living God. You may be seated. Thank you for standing. We came on last week and uh, finished a couple of uh, Sundays zoning in on, really, verse 19 of 1 Peter chapter 1. And we learned that the best translation of that... Um, the beginning of verse 19 is, is that we have also a more sure word of prophecy. We saw here where Peter laid down an amazing principle by the Holy Spirit, and that is that we don't exalt experience above truth. And he used his own experience to prove his point. He said, you know, I was up on the Mount of Transfiguration. I had an eyewitness vision, an eyewitness um, uh, experience and encounter with, with Christ and all His glory. Uh, but even still, with me giving you this witness, uh, the more sure word of prophecy is what you need to go with. And of course, that became part of holy, uh, holy uh, uh, canon, but uh, he laid down a principle there that is often violated, and that is that we will exalt experience above truth. And so we went into that, and then he moves on and tells us that no uh, scriptures of any private interpretation, and we learned that that interpretation means really better better translated, origin. That nobody just came up and decided uh, to, um, to write the Scriptures that God wrote them. And He moved through men through the power of the Holy Spirit. And they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And we see the picture of the movement of the Holy Spirit is, is, uh, is the same word that's used in the, in, in the, the end of Acts to talk about a, um, a wind blowing into a sail and filling a sail ship to move it the way the wind wants it to go. And that's the picture of the Holy Spirit breathing on men and through men's hearts to write out what He willed and dictated to them. And so we have the Scriptures and we, 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 we went into length and talked about that. It's no surprise that He would come right after that and affirm something we all know to be true and that is <clears throat> that the church is attacked from the outside. That's about the, really the theme of how to handle the outside attacks written in First Peter. But in Second Peter, we have instruction from Peter about uh, warning and detecting 
the attacks that come within it. Um, not only does the attacks mounted outside it, but really, in sometimes a more dangerous way, um, they come from within it. And we know that there are those who come in uh, to the uh, to the circles of the church, and they use the Bible not to enlighten but to deceive. They use it and twist it uh, to make it say what they want it to say. It doesn't mean they don't use the Bible, but they abuse the Bible. And then uh, in so doing that, lead people astray. The states could not be higher uh, relative to truth. God doesn't have a soft disposition toward false teaching at all. Uh, he doesn't appreciate His name and His identity blasphemed. And he doesn't appreciate it because not because he's dysfunctional and insecure and he can't handle it. He doesn't appreciate it because of the eternal damage it does to those who subscribe to false teaching. It's tragic. We know from Revelation chapter 22, verses 18 and 19, turn there with me, if you will, he gave us a heads up and said, you start messing with this book, you start messing with the revelation I've given you and toy with it. Severe judgment awaits that. <clears throat> this is just one of many spots. The title of this message is No Compromise, colon, A Little Leaven Leavens the Whole Lump. No Compromise, A Little Leaven Leavens the Whole Lump. If you look at it, here, he issues a warning in Revelation. He said, For I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book, if anyone adds to these things, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this prophecy, God will take away his part from the book of life, from the holy city, and from the things which are written in this book. You don't mess with the Bible. As a matter of fact, we've affirmed this before and talked about it, but the Apostle Paul uh, in first uh, in um, Philippians <clears throat> cited that there were some people that were sharing the legitimate gospel where they were doing it for false motives. They were doing it in line their pockets and their reputation and doing it for self-serving purposes, but they were advancing the legitimate gospel. He had no problem with that. <clears throat> he said, you know what, if their motives are false, as long as they get the message right, it's not, it's not a concern to me. As a matter of fact, they were trying to exploit his imprisonment and use his time off the trail to build a reputation of their own because he got in the way of that. <clears throat> so they were using his imprisonment to, to, uh, to advance their own selfish agendas, but they were preaching the legitimate gospel. And what did Paul say? Jesus will take care of that. Judgment seat, no problem. As long as the message is accurate. You start messing with the truth. When you start contorting it and teaching a false gospel, he'll call you out by name. There are names in the Bible for eternity, for those. Alexander the coppersmith called me, calls me much harm. Uh, that He put in personal names in the Scriptures to mark them out. It's been told before um, by, good, by good sources, ancient sources, that John, the Apostle John, went into a bathhouse in Ephesus. Uh, he was up in years this time. This was before his exile when he had uh, received the revelation that became the book of Revelation. And he went in, he was in a bathhouse and a prominent um, false teacher in Ephesus came in there at the same time. And he left the bathhouse immediately because he didn't want to be associated with him or seen with him. Uh, he wanted to see that they were, in, they were in unity at all. The only person that was standing to gain from that was the false teacher to take the legitimacy of the Apostle John and use it for his own purposes. But the church stood to gain, uh, to uh, be hurt by that. So he immediately left the bathhouse because he didn't want to even be seen in the same area as this false teacher. It's a big deal. <clears throat> you know, the devil is 
a great imitator. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13-15. He's long since learned that the best tool in his arsenal is not to expose himself for who he really is, but to come disguised as an angel of light. And it's been effective for him. If it ain't broke, as we would say in the South, don't fix it. And uh, this has worked well for him. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 13 through 15. And there it says um, that um, there are false apostles, deceitful workers, transforming themselves into the apostles of Christ, apostles of Christ. So no wonder. Little wonder that would happen, for Satan himself transforms himself into an angel of light. Therefore, it is no great thing that if his ministers also transform themselves into ministers of righteousness, whose end will be according to their works. They will meet with the end and the same fate of the destination of the people who subscribe to their works. Hell. Satan is a great imitator. He has false Christians. Matthew chapter 13, verse 38. Go there. Matthew 13, 38. If you look at that, if you can't get there in time enough for all these, you might want to just write them down. Matthew 13, 38. This is just a sampling too. There's other places. The field is the world in the parable of the tares when he explains the parable and he said the good seeds are the sons of the kingdom but the tares are the sons of the wicked one so he has false Christians he certainly has false teachers to go along with the false Christianity that he promotes look at Matthew chapter 7 <clears throat> in verse 21 and we know that the false prophets uh, come as wolves in sheep's clothing in order to come in sheep's clothing as a wolf, you've got to kill some sheep. Stands to reason, doesn't it? He said, the way you'll know them is by their fruit. But look what he says in 21. Not any, everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, shall enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father in heaven. And many will say to me in that day, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied in your name, cast out demons in your name, and done many wonders in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. That's rebellion. That's those who will not submit to authority. That's the pathology of the devil. He is a rebel. And he recruits rebels to join his cause. Look at John 8, 44. And there are false Christians. There might be some in here today. Um, I don't know. But maybe the Lord, by His grace, will illuminate your heart and show you whether or not your faith is legitimate. If there's anything you want to be sure about, it's that. <clears throat> 8.44, the Bible says, You are of your father, the devil, and the desires of your father you want to do. He was a murderer from the beginning. He does not stand in truth because there's no truth in him. And when he speaks a lie, he speaks his own from his own resources. For he is a liar and the father of it. So there are false Christians. There's a false gospel. Galatians chapter 1. Galatians chapter 1. Go with me there if you will. Startling. Startling affirmation from the Apostle Paul. Galatians chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 6. I marvel 
that you are turning away so soon from Him who called you in the grace of Christ to a different gospel, which is not another, but there are some who trouble you and want to pervert the gospel of Christ. But even if we or an angel from heaven preach any other gospel to you than what we have preached to you, let him be accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone preaches any other gospel to you than what you have received, let him be accursed. He says that twice. In the margin of your Bible, it might say anathema. Let him be treated as anathema. To be honest with you, the best way to translate that in English is this. If anyone comes to you with a different gospel than what you've heard, let him go to hell. That's what that means. I say again, if anyone comes to you with a gospel different than what's been preached to you by me, or if even if I come back and change it, or an angel from heaven, let him go to hell. That's what that means. And you say, that's pretty harsh. You know why? Because when you, promote a, when you promote a false gospel, it's bad enough that you're going to hell. But it's a greater tragedy to lead other people there. I stopped a guy on the campus at KSU and we were trying to witness some folks coming in and they had a sticker. It was during the election time they had a sticker supporting Mitt Romney. And I just thought, I bet this guy's Mormon. Has nothing to do with Mitt Romney. But... Um, and, uh, and so, um, so I stopped him, we engaged in a conversation, and I begged him, I said, please. I said, it's a tragedy. It's a tragedy that the leadership of LDS is going to hell. That's a tragedy. But the greater tragedy is that you're going to follow them there. You're going to follow them there. Don't follow them to hell. Please don't do that. Please don't do that. The states couldn't be higher. We're talking about eternity here. Eternity. Eternity. Heaven, hell. So they have a false gospel. He has false Christians. He has a false set of. He has false righteousness. Look at Romans chapter nine, verse thirty. In Romans chapter nine. He covers the. He covers the gamut. Romans nine thirty. And we talked about this and affirmed it before. And praise God for this. But if you're a legitimate believer, uh, there's nothing that um, there's nothing that that uh, the devil can do about our relationship. I know that aggravates him. That's good. There's nothing he can do to sever us from Christ. And so if he can't do anything about our relationship, what does he do? He try to go around and mess up the fellowship. Okay, that's what I can do. Then I can render them uh, ineffective and powerless. As a matter of fact, I'll use them to convert, con confuse people who are already confused. And that way I can add to their confusion. And so it's a good strategy from the devil. I'm not commending him, but who can blame him? Because it has been effective for him. What should we say then? The Gentiles who do not pursue righteousness have attained a righteousness, even the righteousness of faith. But Israel, pursuing the law of righteousness, has not attained to the law of righteousness. Why? Because they did not seek it by faith, but as it were by the works of the law. For they stumbled at that stumbling stone. As it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stumbling stone and a rock of an offense, and whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. The greatest lie promulgated by the devil is that you can, through some subscribed code of conduct, law, or some religious ceremony, or some moral lifestyle, can make yourself fit for heaven on your own. He'd rather have you believe that than almost anything else. And uh, most people are caught up in that lie. You ask the average person if they're going to heaven, and most people will tell you yes. And if you ask them why they believe they're going to go there, and they'll say, well, I try to be a good person. 
good outweighs the bad. If I could just get out of here and the scales tip in my favor, then, 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 then I believe God will accept me. That is a huge, huge lie. That's a lie. Heaven's a holy place occupied by a holy God. And only holy people get to go there. And if everybody's unholy on their own, something's got to change in order to make us fit for heaven. And what did God do? But exercise the righteous judgment of our sin and what our sin deserved on His blessed Son. And it's only through repentance and faith in Him that we have hope of a sure heaven. The righteousness that comes by faith and not by the works of the law. The righteousness, quote-unquote, that comes by the works of the law is a false righteousness and it's advanced by the devil. So he has a false Christians, he has false gospel, he has a false righteousness. And one day, one day, he will come and reveal a false Christ. Antichrist. I mean, he's, he's in for the long haul here. He's going to hell. And he knows that. The deepest part of the darkness of hell was designed for the devil. The devil's not sovereign lord over hell, having a good time every time somebody gets thrown there. That's his plight. That's where he's headed. Eternal judgment. In the worst part of it. But in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, um, it says, you know, as a matter of fact, the spirit of the Antichrist is already here. But he'll reveal himself soon. Now, brethren, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, verse 1, and the gathering together to Him, we ask you not to be shaken in mind or troubled, either by spirit or by word or by letter, as if from us, as though the day of Christ had come. Let no one deceive you by any means, for that day will not come unless the falling away comes first. And the man of sin is revealed, the son of perdition, who opposes and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, show him, showing himself that he is God. Do you remember that when I was still with you, I told you these things, and now you know what is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness, remember, remember uh, Matthew chapter 7, is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way, and that's the Holy Spirit. Then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and will destroy with the brightness of his coming. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan, with all power, signs, and lying wonders, and with all unrighteous deception among those who perish, because they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason God will send them strong delusion that they should believe the lie, that they all may be condemned who do not believe the truth but had pleasure in unrighteousness. So the devil has false Christians. The devil has a false gospel. The devil has a false righteousness. And the devil will, be, will soon uh, have permission under the sovereign will of God to reveal a false Christ. And Peter is saying this is what you're going to have to deal with. Second Peter, let's go back. Chapter 2, verse 1. There were false prophets among the people, even as there will be false teachers among you. Notice the difference there. He said false prophets, at the time when the prophecy of the Bible was being written, the Word of God was being written, false prophets came to counter that Word to say, here's the Word of God. 
Now it's not false prophets we deal with because the Bible is complete. Nobody's writing the Bible. It's been written. Now we deal with those who would teach or pervert that which has been written. So instead of dealing with false prophets, we're dealing with false teachers. And it says, they'll come, and they'll come among you. And they'll come in secretly to bring in destructive heresies. Secretly. It means they'll slip in without being seen. That's what that word means. It means to sneak in under false pretense. It means to sneak in under false pretense. It does not mean you sneak in and go, boo, I'm a false teacher. It means that you sneak in and assert some agreement with the fundamentals of faith, but over time, over time, you begin to call for those who do subscribe to the fundamentals of the faith to compromise ever so gently. And over time, if you wait it out long enough, you will extract enough of a compromise to them that their faith doesn't look like it did when you first got there. There are three things in Scripture that trigger church discipline. Three things in Scripture that trigger church discipline. If there's unrepentant immorality that's known by the church, then that is a, that is a reason to exercise church discipline. Sexual immorality, lying, cheating, stealing, whatever. And then, the second one is division. There's division inside the church and people are talking about one another behind their back and doing things to separate and to cause uh, slices within the body. That's a reason for church discipline. And the third reason for church discipline is false doctrine. Somebody begins to promote false doctrine whereby the church is hurt and it will be hurt. And they begin to take root and begin to have any kind of influence. If we sit idly by and let that go on, that's the reason I titled this message No Compromise. There can be no compromise. Compromise never works to the benefit of principled people. It always works to the benefit of the unprincipled. They're the ones that stand to gain. If you stand on your principles, you cannot compromise them. You must not compromise them. We stand on the Word of God. Because see, once you subscribe to the fundamentals of the Christian faith and people begin to see that you have what seems to be a legitimate confession over time, through the Word of God, through careful discernment from the Holy Spirit, uh, those among us who are false, it will be proven. And we have to be vigilant about the truth. We're not going to compromise by God's grace the truth. We're not going to sacrifice the truth for the sake of unity. We'll not sacrifice the truth for the sake of unity. Compromise of the truth for the sake of unity produces a false unity anyway. Not united if we had to compromise in order to get there. And he said the destruction, they'll be brought in by stealth. I've seen this happen. I was in the church and we were trying to expose some stuff that had come in. And I had some material that I had ordered and sent to me. And one of the members of the staff, I wasn't there when the material came in. And one of the secretaries of the church, we had nine pastors. I was one of them. And, I, and he called and said, uh, Pastor Lindsay, the stuff you ordered came in. And I said, good. And it was some stuff I was examining to lay beside some of the things that we were dealing with. And one of the staff members who promoted that took the material and hid it under his desk. So I walked in next Monday morning and I said, where's, uh, where's all that, 
what's that stuff I ordered? And uh, they said, well, it, uh, so Pastor so-and-so's got it. And I went over to him and I said, brother, where's that stuff at? And he said, well, come on in. He went to his office and I went into where you sit in the office and put your, you put your legs under a typical desk. And he had it crammed up and under there where his feet were. I saw him went back. And he said, okay. And I knew then, if you're walking in light, you get the benefits of the light. And if you're walking in darkness, you have to hide what you believe that is of the devil. You're standing in truth. You're not afraid of the light. As a matter of fact, you're walking in it. Light is a great disinfectant. It's a powerful disinfectant. So that stuff was brought in secretly. And over time, I've seen this happen. I had a front row seat to watch this happen. Passionate about this. Because I've seen how messed up and how the destruction that comes from this. This is a destructive. They'll bring in secretly destructive heresies. That word destruction means ruin beyond repair. That word means eternal judgment. That word means hell. Hellish heresy. Heresy is hellish. Heresy, when embraced, sends people to hell. This is no small thing. We are to contend for the faith. We're not to be contentious, but we are to contend. We're not to be ugly and mean, but we are to be principled and wise. That's why there's no room for compromise. When the Judaizers snuck in among Paul's ranks, which birthed the need to write the book of Galatians, and what they were doing was, is they were saying, the liberty that you have in Christ, we want to try to kill. Because death cannot stand life. So we're going to come in by stealth. <clears throat> a stealth bomber. We're going to come in. And we're going to look like Christians. We're going to act like Christians. And we're going to know Christianese. And we're going to come in among you. And we're going to try to mix in law and grace. And legalism. And spiritualism. And we're going to make it look sweet and kind and palatable and reasonable. And the Apostle Paul, it drew his ire big time. And he said, you're not going to get me looped back into what Jesus delivered me from. And look what he said in Galatians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. Look at Galatians 2, 4 and 5. Just insightful here about Apostle Paul's response to this. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 2, verses 4 and 5. This was his response. You know what? Why don't we just go up to chapter verse 1. Let's go to verse 1. This is Apostle Paul. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them that gospel which I preached among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were of reputation, lest by any means I had run, I might run or had run or run in vain. You know, Love covers a multitude of sins. And rather than the Apostle Paul going and making some big citywide campaign by going back to Jerusalem to talk to the leadership of the church in Jerusalem, and rather than him trying to make some big campaign 
to pro pro possibly promote that he's in opposition to them, he goes to them privately. And he says, guys, this is the gospel I've been preaching. Now, how does it line up with the gospel that you've been preaching? And they were in agreement. That's how you deal with it. And so they got in agreement. And they said, you know what? Righteousness comes by faith alone, by grace alone, and through Christ alone. And that's it. Works of the law don't justify you before God. They said, good. We're, we're on the same page. And they would be because Jesus gave the gospel to both of them. And he says, Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, Titus was a Gentile, was compelled to be circumcised. See, there were some legalists among them who had crept in and said, Now that you've been saved, you need to be circumcised in order to complete the work. And then Paul's saying, No, the work in Christ is already complete. And so there were others trying to add to that which they'd been delivered from, and they didn't put up with it. And Titus didn't, he wasn't compelled to be circumcised. And this, why this happened? Because false brethren, it doesn't say brethren, it says false brethren secretly, by stealth, came in to spy out our liberty which we have in Christ, that they may bring us again into bondage. And look at his response to it. This is how much he put up with it. By to whom we did not yield submission for even an hour that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. That's how Apostle dealt with it. I didn't put up with that for one minute. We didn't get into these unending arguments. Man, I've had people in ministry that want to take some minutia of truth and just bore a hole in it and take some, some issues and just drive it home and want to have one meeting after the other, after the other, after the other. You know what's always common among people like that? I never hear about them sharing the gospel with anybody. They're more concerned about proving a point than they are promoting the gospel. That's always been common about people like that. They want to take just a little article, an A in the Scripture, and say, no, that's better said as. Okay. The A should be an as. Okay, I'll give you that. Well, let me ask you a question. Have you ever bothered to talk to your co-worker about Christ? Have you ever bothered to love them and ever bothered to share the gospel? No, because you're too caught up in these little arguments that we want to get involved in that are useless, meaningful, and unfruitful. Heresies. If they're going to bring in destructive heresies, what it says. Okay, let's go look at that one. Second Peter. I'm going to tell you where all this comes from in just a minute. I'll share it with you. It says, bring in destructive heresies. Again, this is not bland stuff. This is not, these are not things that, that, that are just innocent, that don't hurt people. People get hurt. Can you imagine the incredible offense if somebody doesn't care anymore about you and your family that they would exploit you with false teaching in order to extract money to you and couldn't care less whether or not you and your, your people you care about go to hell? I don't know that anything gets worse than that. I don't know of anything worse than that, to be honest with you. Charlatans. Boy, we have plenty of them in America. We have plenty of them in our church culture, that's for sure. Destructive heresies. That word means, I'm going to read you a definition from Vines. It means an opinion, especially a self-willed opinion, which is substituted for submission to the power of the truth and leads to division and the formation of sex. 
I thought, that's a good working definition. An opinion, especially a self-willed opinion, which is substituted for submission to the power of the truth and leads to division and the formation of sects. S-E-C-T-S. Heresy. Even denying the Lord who bought them. Man, I'm going to tell you something right now. The mercy of God is all over this text. Big time. Big time! Because when he says denying right there, very interesting that God would pick and tap on the shoulder of Peter to write this through. That word denying, it means to refuse. It means to be unwilling. It means to firmly say no. It's what that word. It's just interesting. Just interesting. A little parenthetical observation here. That that's the same word that God used of Peter when he denied the Lord three times before the cock crowed. It's the same word. Peter's a little bit familiar with that word. That word is used in Matthew 26.70. It's 26.72. It's used in Mark 14.68. Mark 14.70. Luke 22.57. John 18, verse 25. And John 18, verse 27. And every one of those are the gospel accounts and all four gospels of Peter's denial of Jesus Christ. Deny the Lord who bought them. Now, if you want to bore a hole where holes need to be bored, that's a good place to do it. Why is that, I wonder? i tell you another thing. If you're here right now and you got a sordid past, which we all do, it ought to offer you encouragement that he didn't use that opportunity to say anything about his own personal vows. You know why? Because the blood had cleansed him. And he had repented. And he wasn't walking in that anymore. Amen? I mean, you know, if there was ever an opportunity for Peter to say, by the way, I know this word. I know this word because Jesus gave me a heads up and said you're going to do this three times before the rooster crows. And three times before the rooster crowed, I denied him. And I'm familiar with this. I didn't stay there. I repented. But I'm familiar with this. And I was thinking, okay, why is that same word used? Because we know the Holy Spirit wrote this. If the Holy Spirit wrote this, it's a perfect choice. And I thought, why is that used? Why is that same word used? Peter doesn't take the opportunity to say anything about it. Praise God. His car looks like a Christian's car. His car has a windshield, and the windshield is bigger than the rearview mirror. Praise God. Hallelujah. Amen? And so, but yet he used the word. Because see, the difference between Peter and the difference between the false teachers is that Peter repented. We've all denied the Lord. Every last one of us. We'll do it today. You'll do something, and so will I, more than likely, that will deny the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We assert the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We claim the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We believe in the Lordship of Jesus Christ. But we'll do something today that denies that. You gossip about somebody, you've denied the Lordship of Jesus Christ. You sin in any measure, you've denied the Lordship of Jesus Christ. That's what it is. But it's one thing to stay that way, and that's what the false teachers did. I want you to, I want to, I want to, I want to, we're not going to have time to develop this, but I want, you, I want you to consider something. I don't know hardly anything about police work except what I picked up from Adam 12. Greg, do you remember Adam 12? 
You're lying. Come on, see that again. Church discipline. We got to Greg. Call out right there. Just see there. Okay. Thank you very much. And when you're trying to when you're trying to uh, catch a criminal, I know that they'll do a composite, and they'll take attributes of the crime and the eyewitnesses, and they'll put together kind of a composite to identify, and, and it would increase the likelihood of them finding the, the criminal. Is that right? Composite? Okay. In, to the other extreme, to the other extreme, not for a criminal, but for a Christ, that's what the Gospels are. The Gospels are a composite of Christ. Now we can look at the Gospels and we say, okay, they're, 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 it's, they're corroborating evidence. In other words, God's called upon four people to write out evidence of the life of Christ and His activity. And we put those four together and it increases the validity of the testimony. It's almost like having a charge against Henry. And then we have four witnesses that come and give testimony that you saw Henry do it. And more than likely, or maybe I didn't see him do it, but I've seen him do it before. Or maybe, you know, and I know Henry to be this way. And we just have four people that give testimony that, you know, Henry's the one. That would corroborate evidence. And then my, my testimony of the account is way to get somebody else's to see if there's consistency. Don't look at the Gospels like that. Although they, they're, 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 they fit together like a glove. That's not what they are. They're a composite drawing of the, of the Savior. It's what they are. Now, watch, wait just a minute. Matthew, the theme of Matthew is that he's the Messiah. He's the King of the Jews. That's the theme of Matthew. So what happened was, is God took four men and He gave them an assignment, the Holy Spirit. And let's just say that we got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John and they're lined up here. And the Holy Spirit says, Matthew, your job is to write about my son as King of the Jews. And he goes, okay, I got it. So that's what the theme of Matthew is. And then we have Mark over here. And the Holy Spirit taps on Mark's shoulder and says, Mark, I want you to write about my son as the suffering servant. He's the suffering servant. And Mark's got it. That's the theme of Mark. Then you go to Luke. And you see conversions in Luke of Gentiles. And you can see, you see the, the, the scourge of society. The lowest of the lows gets saved in, in, in Luke's account. It's beautiful. And he says, Luke, I want you to write about my son as being the Savior not only of the Jews, but the Savior and the light to the Gentiles. He's the Son of Man. That's your assignment. And then he says, Son, John, here's what I want you to do. I want you to write about my son as being God. And that was John's assignment. You look at the Gospel of John. What does it say? The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we beheld His glory. The glory as of the God and the Father full of grace and truth. The Word became flesh. God became a man. That's His theme. And we put those together. And here's what, and this is what ties to the false teacher. Listen to this now. Tease the Gospels to your children like this. And, and, and listen to this. Those who were waiting for their King to come, the Jews who were waiting for their King to come, were confused and disoriented about the parts of the Old Testament that prophesied His suffering. 
And they would look at those parts like Isaiah 53. What does it say? We esteem Him as broken before God. That, that all we like sheep have gone astray, each having turned our own way, but He hath laid upon Him the iniquity of us all. By His stripes we are healed. And they looked at that and they go, wait a minute, our coming King is depicted in the Scriptures, the prophecies, as being one who suffers. As a criminal. One who suffers. And you know how they came, you know you know how they resolved that? Because they were looking for a king in all his pomp and circumstance. That's why Bethlehem birth in a stable threw him. Hold on a second. That's not how a king comes. Here's how they resolved it. Nothing new under the sun. This is the way they resolved it. Obviously, the prophecies that spoke of his reign and his royalty are literal. And the prophecies that spoke of his suffering are figurative. So, we'll take that part and embrace it. Our king. But on the suffering part, that's allegorical. That must mean that he's such a benevolent, kind leader that he would lead in a way of self-sacrifice. Not make one, just lead that way. And we look at that and go, wow, they missed him by a country mile, didn't they? But you know what? The false teachers do the exact same thing. It's smorgasbord Christianity. We're going to take the royalty and the regalia and the purple robes and the crowns. We'll take all that. Joel Osteen will fill you up with that. The Bible was written with you at the center. And you're the center of the Bible. And life is supposed to go your way. And juniors, under his, under junior guys like that will do the same thing. And then we'll bring it home. There are some in our ranks that will do the same thing. And they'll make the church everything about everything but the gospel. Matter of fact, there are most those among us who make the church about the family. Family idolatry. It's about the family. The church is about the family, mom, dad, and kids. That's not right. The church is about the gospel. It's centered around Christ and His gospel. And that's how families are best taken care of. And that's how families are best nurtured. Because the new birth is still necessary. And so we have to, we have to look in the mirror and own up to it. You guys need to be careful about who you're listening to. There was one leader in the age-integrated movement who went to a church in Atlanta. And I wept when I saw his sermon because he took the, the, he took the account. I saw this firsthand. took the account of Joseph and said, here we have one of the greatest tragedies in the Bible. We have Joseph taking a Gentile bride, a dysfunctional, coming from a dysfunctional family and began to walk the dog about Joseph being a dysfunctional man when in reality, Joseph is the most prominent type of Jesus in all of Scripture. And I realized this guy's going down the road that his theology will take him. And that is to take the account of Jesus, of Joseph and see it through the lens of family rather than seeing it through the lens of Jesus. I was disappointed that the senior pastor of that church, because I, I know of this ministry, I was contorted and glad to find out that when he found out about it and that was preached in his absence, he was very upset. 
I found that out from the student pastor. I was glad to hear it. Because I'm here to tell you, if we exalt anything above a risen Christ, risen Christ, we are going down the road of heresy. Christ and His Gospel is the center of the church. We want to take care of your family. We're asking and calling upon you to take care of them. We want to follow the Scriptures, but we don't want to get out of balance because heresy is truth out of balance. It better be about the Gospel front and center. And the Gospel's best delivered in family. I don't mean that. Don't get me out of balance. But Christ and His Gospel is our message. He's the center of this church. And families are nourished and cared for here. But what about single families? What about single people? What about people who are single again? What are we supposed to do? We're supposed to share the Gospel. And we want, we want a rich testimony of Christ and His Gospel because that's the center of the church. It has to be. And as a hill to die on, we do not embrace a crossless Christ. You get in by the cross and you and I get in by the cross. But you know what we try to do? We try to switch places with Jesus. We want Him on the cross and we want to get up on the throne. And we need to switch places and let's get on the throne, get on the cross and let Him and affirm Him that He's on the throne. We want a gospel that costs nothing. I don't mean to get saved, but I mean once you're saved. Once you're saved, the only way, the only way, the only way to walk in the fullness and the blessing of God is not just to embrace the work of the cross for you, but it is to embrace the work of the cross that God purposes and wills to do in you. And we are every bit as resistant to that as the Jews in ancient time. They recontorted and reformed Christ to fit their appetites. That's what a false teacher will do. No, no, no. You can have your cake and eat it too. Jesus came in your heart and He wants to live there with you. He came to improve you because you have potential. And yet the Bible teaches He came to crucify us after having crucified Himself. It's not to be saved. It's because you are. We have this notion that the Christian life is just a, a, to float through the, through, the, through, the, through the earth and just every, everything go your way. We're supposed to avoid every nasty situation, avoid every difficulty. We're supposed to run. We're supposed to hide. And you know what that is? That's not a misunderstanding of the cross only. It's a misunderstanding of the heart of the God who put His Son there. Because I'm going to tell you something right now. If He purposes to do the work of the cross in me, and that means I get to know Him better, then we should value that as worth it. It's an act of worship. Our God is worthy. Is He not? So the false teacher does the same thing. We'll talk about Christ. We'll even talk about salvation. But taking up the cross and denying yourself and following Jesus... I don't have an appetite for that. It's allegorical. It's, not, it's figurative. It's not literal. And yet Jesus said, unless a grain of wheat falls into the ground and dies, it remains alone. And he who loves his life will lose it. And he who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternity. Keep it. There were testimonies of people who lost their lives this week. 
hope you lose your life this week. hope I lose mine. Die daily. And say, so, you know what, Lord? No matter where you carry me, no matter what it means, no matter, no, matter, no matter what, it doesn't matter. I don't get a vote about my career. I don't get a vote about any of my choices. I don't get a vote about any of them because I'm dead. I'm dead. Somebody ran into my truck. It was so much freedom. But overnight, the other night, this is a small example, but somebody ran into my truck. And I just parted there. We got back from the Wednesday night Bible study, and I'm in the cul-de-sac. So we're kind of pulled away. And those of you who know my house and been there at our house, we're enough away from the cul-de-sac that I feel like I just, I, I park a lot of times on the, what do you call it? Curb! And so I was parked on the curb. And in the middle of the night, somebody came and banged my truck. And I got up the next day, and Jill said, Have you seen your truck today? And I said, No. Try it there. She said, Well, it's banged up on the side. And somebody had banged it up and just kept on going. And, I, and normally I would have got mad about that. And I was, so, I was thinking, well, Lord, I'm dead. It's your truck. Somebody hit your truck. <laughs> That's the truth. And now Geico's going to fix it Wednesday to give me a rental car. I'm going to get to drive around the fancy rental car for the next couple of days. And there was something wrong with the door where it got hit anyway. And now they're going to fix that too. <laughs> so the devil wrecked Jesus' truck. And I got the beneficiary of it. Amen. How about that? I'm going to start parting on the curb more. <laughs> Small example, but it's the truth. If you're dead, nobody can take anything from you. It all belongs to Him. Amen. You want to die? Let's die. Let's die because on the other side of death, you know what the prerequisite for resurrection is? Death. you got to die before you can be raised. And the false teachers say, no, you can have your cake and eat it too. You can live, figuratively speaking. You can ignore the cross and give some kind of little bit of a little bit of lip service to it. And in practical reality, deny it every single day. And you're headed for heaven. Maybe so. Maybe not. Maybe not. It's worth asking the question, isn't it?